Hello and welcome to the Soundworks Collection podcast series. This is Michael Coleman, and this week we are talking with Renee Tondelli and Eugene Gerdy, co-supervising sound editors and sound designers on Mary Poppins Returns. The film is directed by Rob Marshall and features an all-star cast including Emily Blunt, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Ben Wishaw, Emily Mortimer, Colin Firth, Meryl Streep, and surprise performances from Dick Van Dyke and Angela Lansbury. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with me about this really exciting film. I feel like we haven't had a musical like this in quite a while. And Renee, you worked with Rob on his 2014 film, Into the Woods, another wonderful musical starring Meryl Streep and just an incredible cast. So I'd love to find out more about how this project came about and when you guys first heard about it. Well, I've worked with Rob for, this will be my fifth film with him. So when we were on Into the Woods, we heard rumblings of Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins. And then there was rumblings of Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt. And we all said, she's perfect. I mean, you have to do it because of Emily Blunt. And so I knew about it for a while. And then um, we were going to do it posted in New York. I'm LA based. And we, so we were looking for somebody wonderful in LA, I mean, in New York. And there was a short list and I said, it's Eugene. We got to talk to Eugene. He's going to be our guy. And then Rob and I pushed Eugene to the top of the list and said, you know, I want Eugene to do it. And Rob said, yeah, I talked to him. And I think he didn't even talk about the film, right? Eugene, he just talked about you. And yeah, we chatted, chatted about things. In fact, the movie, uh, which Rob has reiterated since that it was really an important film at this time because, you know, things were not cool in terms of, uh, you know, there was sadness in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And that's yeah. how we started. So Eugene and I then long before we even started, we had gotten the script and talked about ideas and concepts and how we were going to do things. And it was pretty a wonderful collaboration really from the beginning. Yes, I'm very grateful for Renee to, uh, uh, for suggesting me to work on this project. It was, uh, uh, you know, a great uh, opportunity for me, honestly. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for Renee, to Renee for that. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> so when you have a film that is so driven like this one by the music and by the orchestration mark uh, composer mark shaman did a, a fantastic job of just weaving together from c carrying scene to scene and, and, and there's a handful of obviously other features throughout but with so much music how does one manage uh just keeping track of everything because i can imagine the the period rolling up into production pre-production of just getting kind of everyone on the same page like what was kind of that dance, how does your director like to kind of manage expectations, manage all the all the various personalities and, and collaborate with you guys when it comes to so much material? Well, he manages everything. I've never met a director or worked with a director quite like Rob Marshall. He is aware of everything. Even last night when we were lining up for the to go into our panel discussion, he gave us our orders of where we were going to stand and when we were going to go out and how we're going to do it. And, and I mean, Rob is, is really uh, incredibly detail-oriented, which is wonderful for us because there's he's very good at expressing what he wants um, and being very clear about it. So a lot of the times, I mean, when we started just 
there were certain scenes that we tackled right away because they really could be helped with sound. And when Eugene and I started, we were just working with pencil drawings and green screen, and there was not much there for our for us to see. But we went off on what we thought would be helpful in that. And one of the first things we did really was the ceramic world, because that is a place where you could really help with sound. Like to be able to make you feel like you're actually in a ceramic bowl, a porcelain bowl, it's really fun to do that with sound. And it instantly says we've arrived inside a porcelain bowl. So we did that. We did some Foley elements with the horse, which was, I think, the only animated character at the time. And he was wonderful because he was such a syncopated, rhythmic element of the music that he became, we had to get his feet properly in there and um, and the sound quality and how we did that. And Eugene and I played a lot with um, the sound. There was two Foley teams that worked on this, one C5 in New York and one Footsteps in Toronto. And the ones in Toronto were the ones we were working with with the feet and the sounds and the ring-offs and the ceramic qualities of everything because everything in that bowl, even the carriage, was ceramic. So when they stood on the on the carriage it had to have a ceramic quality to the feet and so we were able to really make that flush that out for them and make that make them really feel like they were in that bowl and I mean that was one of the first things we did and I'll let Eugene go on about the ceramic bit right well you know Renee I actually want to explain to Michael um and this just came to me while listening to you I had this brilliant idea initially uh how we were going to start this project and it was, I, I was going to reduce the emphasis on footsteps. I was going to go for more Russell and have stereo recordings of Mary's movements, you know, and her, her costume would have this dramatic, you know, sense to it. And the footsteps were there, but they weren't, I was like, why is that, why are footsteps important? And then coupled with that, uh, I was using Wyatt, um, Wyatt Smith's, uh, our picture editor's, uh, his AAF is a blueprint on what to focus on. It was like, oh, if they went and did this stuff, it must be important to them. And Wyatt reiterated that right up. He said, you know, Eugene, the way this is going to work is Rob's not going to get to the final mix and hear something new uh, and enjoy it. He's going to say, where did that come from? So the Mm -hmm. more you can get to me earlier, the more chance the material will be used. And of course, this was a brilliant idea, but I think a month into this, Renee and I realized that we were sort of spinning our wheels by replicating really generic Foley that uh, Wyatt had cut in, uh, which was important. But at the time of attempt mix, we we could have uh, focused on bigger issues. And I think that's when I kind of remember really uh, directing everything towards the ceramic bowl, because that was our first opportunity um, animation wise to work with something. Uh, but I have to admit, I, uh, um, there was sort of a backtracking initially that uh, it was a clever idea on my part to say, well, I, I got to get I got to do these little this little, you know, sniffle and this footstep and this and this hair movement. When in fact, yes, we did ultimately replace all that. But initially it wasn't as critical as I thought. Then again, we also had a tent mix that never developed. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I just know Foley is really important with yeah. in a Rob film because he does have all of these sounds. I mean, these songs, there's 12 brand new songs in this film. 
and they're all brand new lyrics. And you can't use anything from the production except Mm. the dialogue. That's the only thing that's really usable. So every single thing has to be replaced. And that's always been a thing with, with Rob's musicals is that the way I've always approached it is Foley is really important because it does have helped to sync that song and the dramatic lens material along with the stage material and make it really cohesive and make you feel that that actually is happening at that moment in an abandoned park or inside a porcelain bowl. So, and I've always done recorded dancers, the actual choreographers from the set that that did the original, that were the co-choreographers of this. So they went in New York, we did that where we came and hired, we hired them and they hired eight dancers and they spent two days on a stage, a rehearsal stage, teaching them every single dance in the movie, including Dick Van Dyke. And then we recorded, we, you know, I, it, this was where we did this at C5 and we had a uh, C5 was great. They were they created all these stage floors for me that I wanted. One was leather covered, one was wood, one was slate. Like they actually built, they brought an Italian mason and he built a slate sunken sand floor for me for all the Learys. And, and then we brought in pipes. We brought in all these wonderful elements and then had the dancers reprodu- reproduce these steps. And and also in a Rob Marshall film, which is really typical, is that his choreography is very layered and very sophisticated. So you may have five or six rows of dancers, each one doing a separate element that is part of the syncopation of the track. And you wouldn't know it if you didn't have a dancer there saying, no, 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 at this point, these guys are doing this with their legs and this with their knees and this with their, you know, there was all these other elements that we brought into it. And it's, it was really fun to do that. And we spent about seven days just reproducing all the dance fully on that. I was going to also mention that uh, we had to integrate Renee's dance foley, which was beautiful with the actual uh, dance uh, footstep foley that uh, say, uh, worked up till that dance number. And uh, we had an idea again early on. It shows you how things develop over time. Uh, Renee and I thought, well, let's put their footsteps before we even get to the big dance number. Let's put our footsteps in in uh, sync in time with the music. So we were Which less sounded crit- great. <laughs> <laughs> and it really did. It was uh, one there when they're tra- tra- trancing down the street before they get to the, the uh, abandoned park. They're singing and they're dancing, and we we sunk up all the footsteps slightly out of sync visually to really work with the music, and we we loved it, both of us, uh, of course. And Rob sort of sensed it was a little too on the nose, so we started to back off from that just slightly. It wasn't a, a big redo, but definitely you could see how, on the one hand, um, Rob really is interested in in choreography and timing, but the other hand, he didn't want it to sound, you know delivered you know he really or telegraphed he really did want it to be messy at times so these are the things that come up in a in in developing a soundtrack that you you know you you bounce off each other and the director has input and it gets developed further it's it's Mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun to be part of that's awesome so something i'm just looking at your um you know your production mixer simon hayes i can imagine you need to have someone who understands this type of production i mean he he's done les mis and and there's i mean looking at his his credits there's a, a, you know just a deep understanding of you know maybe why he's the man for the job but 
what's the different considerations that one has when you're working on a musical? I mean, that's the, always the question that comes up. Oh, was there playback? Was it pre-records? Like, how was this production run? And I think people are always curious to dissect that process because there's not one right way or one easy way to do this. So what was like the combination of ways that you guys figured out for, for this film? Well, first of all, Simon Hayes, Simon Hayes, Simon Hayes. I mean, <laughs> he is, I, his tracks are so beautiful. And really, we, you know, there is, we always go for the original performances with Rob. I mean, he rarely goes in for ADR. And if it is, it's at the last, last resort. So Simon Hayes just gave us impeccably beautiful tracks. And he was ferocious on the set. I mean, people were like, you didn't mess with Simon because, you know, the sound guy is like the last bottom. Nobody gives him any, you know, spec, respect there. So he would just go, shut up. He would yell in the microphone and everybody would be like terrorized and they would actually be quiet on the set. And he would try to do things for us. He was always conscious of how it was going to end up in our hands and, and what the results were going to be. So what the way Rob works on a musical is that he plays, first of all, he does extensive rehearsal with the actors and the song. So by the time they get into the, the, the stage to do their pre-record vocals, they have muscle memory of what they're doing at that moment when they sing that particular song. So for us, it's wonderful performances because they're not just standing there singing and then they go and shoot it and play. And then we have to try to make this all feel like they're actually moving at that moment. So that's part of their performance when they sing, which is really great. So when Rob play, when he shoots, he'll do three or four takes blasting the music as loud as you possibly can so that all the actors and and we want the and the actors do sing because you can always tell when someone's not singing and they do they go full on it and then he'll say okay cut playback and everybody goes <laughs> it's a moment you know where all the actors have to sit there and now they're singing alone with um handmade each one had handmade ear pieces put put in so they could they had their own earwigs and they would then sing the song. So we, part of the problem, part of the real, I wouldn't say difficulty, but one of the challenges of getting a musical to really work is that combination of dialogue and music and to completely smudge the lines of where the music and the dialogue begin and end. And that's one of Rob's real specialties. And it takes all of the crafts to do that. And especially our sound crew, because what happens is that he will often, he doesn't want to signal the crowd and say, here comes a song. So it's all of this sort of soft, dramatic, and in, in their climactic points in the scene anyway. So at that moment, it becomes the emotional quotient and they naturally go into a song. So we do that a lot from the regular production and then it'll go into the pre-records and then sometimes back to production again because we do have all the elements all the time. And the way Rob edits is he listens to every single line, every single performance. And if he likes the performance of that piece of production that they did, even for a word, even for a syllable sometimes, he'll use that. So when you see the the vocals, it's quite a tapestry of all sorts of elements. 
And between me and Jennifer Dunnington, who was our Uber, my wonderful music supervising editor, was we worked back and forth with all the vocals to make it work. And there was a lot of tweaking and things happening because, you know, I don't know if you remember the conversation in the attic when Michael is singing and talking to his deceased wife. Mm -hmm. It was really powerful and it was really important to make that work and make you really feel that that happened. And then Eugene did this wonderful Foley in there and it just sunk in. And another element is the backgrounds because traditionally in musicals, they knock out all the backgrounds and the song happens and that's it. But we really worked to create this background that enveloped all of the songs and kind of hug them in the scene that's great yeah the the backgrounds in particular uh were important to everybody for that very reason of it making this realism uh and even when we Renee and i were talking about this even when say some of the the more uh you know generic uh, rugs or or tones aren't really critical uh, to when you're hearing them singing, but when you take them out, it actually mm-hmm. does make it far more sterile and sound more like a, a, a pre-record or something. So all the backgrounds were were really important to give that sense of a live a person actually singing in that space. And um, and the trick there is obviously, you know, what do the more uh, traditional backgrounds do, and where can you pinpoint and use pointillistic detail backgrounds? to work with the music it's and where it's not telegraphing things but at the same time it's it's an opportunity because there's a pause that you can have a car by or a bird tw- tweet and again all these things are 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 soup you know a soup zone uh, it's a yeah. little spice here and there and a lot a little goes a long way but it does ultimately give you that feel and Truthfully, it really is about less is more, believe me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. one bird twerk, one scene, that's good. <laughs> a horse, the horse Winnie in the opening scene, you know, mm-hmm. that whole yeah. scene where he's on the bicycle going through the marketplace, that was just so orchestrated and rhythmically, or, and everything was, there's nothing in there by accident. Every single right. sound was really placed specifically. Well, that's great. And definitely, it was a, uh, definitely an issue of what sound at what time. It, it certainly, uh, certain things hit right away, which made sense. Other times, it was an absolute development amongst uh, Renee and I, and and oftentimes Rob. But at, by that time, I think Rob had really got what we were trying to do. And we were we were pretty on in sync with everybody. So uh, absolutely, it was a lot of trial and error on our part. But ultimately what's in there um uh came about with a lot of thought something that comes up you know when there are films that harken back you know to something that people have grown up with there's an expectation of uh that that there's gonna be recognizing the the origins you know of the story And, and and i think mary poppins i don't know if they're like from the original when you guys first were talking about this project were there like must haves of you know, these sounds must be associated with the world of Mary and and whatnot. Like, are there sounds that were, in fact, you know, carried over into this other film? Are there any considerations? No. And, no. you know, it, it really was. I, I mean, Eugene and I, and I think we, I know how you approach it, but pretty much every film is like, oh, God, this is a whole new soundscape. What are we going to do here? What, what can we say? What Absolutely. can we do that's different? Right. And how can we make this work? And. And the first thing we really 
you know, we were setting our soundscape, we looked at this 1930s London, which was a very sad, grim time of no hope. So everything we had, our soundscape at that point was very sort of black and white, not, um, it was industrial, there weren't chirpy birds, there weren't, you know, so we really created that and developed it as the hope came to the movie, more hope came in our tracks and, right. and we made it work. But there wasn't like, you know, the umbrella um, really was very different. It was a different voice. Everything had it had its own sort of new, unique panache to it, you know. So, I mean, with that being said, this, the first kind of very big piece is of this one, the Royal Dalton Music Hall. So this is the the it seems like the piece of all pieces there's like a hundred thousand animated characters running around <laughs> it felt like it yes so what can you say and about, every one yeah. of them was foley every single one <laughs> and so you have, you, yeah, have, you, have, um, you have the dancing penguins you know it's like it, it doesn't stop so that's a great example of i think obviously like there's hand-drawn animation so like when did you start getting picture that was somewhat final did you when did the track kind of come together explain this how this all happened well that was an homage really to the original with you know the barnyard right um, animal scene so we that was one of the well when we first got it like i said it was it was the carriage the horse and that's it a green screen and then when they got to the music hall, it was, we didn't even know what the tent looked for a very long time, right, Eugene? We were like, how is this right. tent going to land? What's it going to look like? Is it going to come in big? All we had was her umbrella spinning. And then we were in the hall. The, oh, no, then they were standing outside and they had their conversation with the wolf, who was just a man in a, a green suit then. And, <laughs> and we had to loop in Colin's voice to that. And then they walked into the hall and sat there with green screen, just the four of them. So it was pretty challenging on that level. And we kept talking a lot with Jim Campo Bianco, who is our animation director, who is amazing. And it's like, so Jim, what are they going to sound? How many animals are they going to be? Where, what's this now? Is the tent going And so he would send us pictures sometimes of what it would look like, but it wasn't the actual motion of it right so as it came and because it was hand drawn they did come in rather uh you know slowly so when we actually got the animals it started it was towards the end and eugene sort of tackled the foley bit of it and i went after the voices and i went to london and hired about 70 actors and they were amazing because they had to we didn't want them to be cartoony but we wanted them to embody these particular animals so each one had to be the dandy frog or the you know whatever they were (laughs) they also had to sing because in this music hall that was they knew the songs that mary were singing so they sang along with the chorus so we had to have that we had animals on the stage singing we had all the feet coming down from you know all the all that but we were able to play a lot with the atmos with that too which was really fun because we put the animals up in the rafters and all over the place and we got i mean that was a big part of it and and then the chase scene which came in it was still coming in, Eugene. Remember, yeah. there was like the chip of the 
ceramic had changed and there were more flames. Eugene was constantly looking and going, oh, no, there's another spark there. You know, he was always adding mm-hmm. stuff in, but he can tell you about the chasing because that was quite elaborate. Yeah, and and the visuals did trickle in quite late. There was many times where branch whoosh were developed towards the very end of the final that they were interested in hearing. But um, the chase scene was definitely the big sound effect moment of the movie, I would say. And um, it came out of uh, an incredible sequence prior with Renee's sound design of all the voices and the way the Foley integrated on leather books and then the stage, which had a different sound. And, and everything was really, really, you know, a lot of wonderful uh, elements were there. And developed, and so then we go outside, and this whole this whole thing has to shift from happy joy to scary night. And we had a lot of fun. We had all spooky birds in Atmos, and you know what was I love the fox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a fox that a buddy of mine recorded that sounds just absolutely awful. It's like somebody being murdered, and it, uh, <laughs> it, it it played in really well with other you know scary stuff. And, and then of course we're on this uh, nightmare journey of Georgie being kidnapped. And that was, you know, a wonderful sequence from a sound design point, you know, perspective to work with. But it very much developed completely, you know, constantly over time to the fact where, Renee, I think we were flying in, you know, ceramic chips through the air. And there were two or three. I don't know why visual effects people have to change things 30 times. And then (laughs) the very last one doesn't look any different than the front one to me, but it's totally out of sync with what we did the other 29 times. But anyway, in the end. (laughs) <laughs> they move that thing three frames, and that's what we do is like play catch up to. Does that look like you? It down. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really funny. Yeah. So, something you mentioned is Atmos. Was it a, a native Atmos mix? Uh, no, no, we uh, we we mixed everything in 7.1, uh, and that was our go to mix. What Rob, uh, Renee, and the mixers, uh, Michael Keller and Michael Presswood Smith, were very uh, familiar with their director and sense that to do Atmos on the onset would not be the right thing. And I followed completely along with that. And believe it or not, this wasn't a, because the amount of music in this movie, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for Atmos to really show itself Mm -hmm. uh, detail wise with sound design. Uh, It's all there. And we definitely tried our, you know, we used whatever we could, but um, you'd be surprised with the music. So dynamic um, it's hard to really get that spatial um, effect of, something you know right there but we did try and mm-hmm. it is in there but um we did an atmos pass after our uh renee i think even after our uh our 7-1 print master is that possible <laughs> michael preston yeah. smith had a really clever uh, uh program for how to do it okay and, and, and did you find that when you start with a 7-1 beds what does that mean for your music was it a, there's a few different uh, you know uses obviously like i'm looking at the soundtrack and that's a stereo mix how did it come in to you guys then? How wide was it? How much separation? How much control were, were was uh, Mike and Michael working with? Um, that definitely would be, uh, you know, a Jennifer Dunnington question. Uh, I know it was extremely wide. Her sessions were humongous. There was a great deal of separation oh, yeah. on everything. And of course, with Renee, they still had to work with the voice, with the singing, with the ADR and the dialogue. So that on itself was was also a, a really complicated weaving, uh, regardless of the orchestrations, which were, uh, you know, amazing and very detailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say this, just uh, in, in terms of Atmos, um, what we did benefit from, I thought, 
was the full range surrounds in Atmos really, when we opened the music up in our Atmos um, uh, template, it you got an extra, it wasn't gain, but you just got a fullness from the music that was quite different than the 7-1. And of course, it was great. It really did sound great. Yeah. And we didn't do much. It wasn't like we moved things around. It was just that full range surrounds really added uh, and enveloped you just a little bit more. Mm. Mm -hmm. that's incredible there's the one with uh marilyn streep turning turtle which to me just like you know the second you see meryl streep playing this character it's like okay i it, it just reminisce like into the woods reminds me exactly how wonderful she is on screen and like what was it about that piece because it seems there's the also now we have the kids singing there's a whole like sound effects kind of playing into it too and it seems it's really subtle it kind of weaves in and out of just a bunch of really interesting sound design like kind of nuances that you guys are sprinkling in there go ahead Brene. yeah <laughs> um we did yeah she well that was tricky for us at first because it was a concept that when we read it in the script it was like oh this is going to be so amazing the whole scene is going to turn around so we're going to i mean eugene had created all these wonderful elements of things tinkling because again we didn't really see what the final result was and then it turned out that it was actually stabilized it just turned upside down so there was a lot of for us to figure out in the beginning what was up and what was down and we ended up using, I mean, Foley was a great element in that. And because the, it's rapid fire lyrics and very hard to understand and at first, you know, there's just so much to get to grasp that we had to be very careful about putting things in there that would step on the lyrics and things. So we, I, it was really, again, constantly sneaking in a laugh here of a breath of, you know, and, and because the music is so big and lush, it was difficult to try to fit things in there but we did we managed to make all that happen and and uh that was she's amazing it was really yeah yeah for sure that was also a, another scene where there was a tremendous amount of development when wyatt smith and i first talked he wanted this world to be full of tchotchkes she was repairing everything under the sun whether it was a clock or a musical instrument or a little toy um so Again, not having any visual reference, you know, it's again a sound designer's dream. You jump into it, you put hundreds of clocks ticking at different tempos, you have little mechanical toys dinging, and you have all this playing off the music. And you realize that it's all happening off camera. And it really honestly didn't make any sense. It's because, like, none of these things were in the foreground. So, where are all these little toys that are binging, <laughs> banging, and ticking? Trains and yeah, it was quite a... everything. Uh, yeah. So again, there's an interesting way of how things develop, and you det you you know dial it back down, and the 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 script and the visuals tell the story of you support. But we really, interestingly enough, tried to make her her workshop be full, like like you know, three rooms full of stuff. And then we said, well, if it's she's fixing it, they're not. It's broken. So why would they be ticking? You know, it's like you know. <laughs> yeah, it's the <laughs> logic. These are the things you go happens. through your head. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And again, too, one one thing that's really important about this is that you create these sounds and you think, oh, great, they're going to work wonderfully with the music, and then they don't, or they, you need more, or you need a different sound. And because the musical orchestrations were developing as we went, and they actually did re more records in London, 
we came back with a much I mean, there's not an instrument that Mark Shaman has ever met that he doesn't like. So every these scores were just huge and rich and full. So we were constantly trying to reshape and work within that those parameters. Exactly. You know, your best intents and your pre-dubs or your sound design initially uh, are what they are. You know, aesthetically, you come up with certain ideas, but it's all about the music. And, you know, how, does, how can you work within that? that those the, the that that structure and uh so again very sophisticated uh sound designer pre-dubs might be on their own wonderful but integrating that is really where the challenge starts and you really wind up rethinking your entire process often that's so cool i was looking back you know one of the kind of un maybe he is un, not necessarily unspoken but just one of the heroes especially for me is richard sherman you know someone who originally oh, worked yeah. on Mary Poppins, someone I think who probably really understood what the sound of the music of Mary Poppins was. And the wonderful thing about this film is that it doesn't, it's all original music. It doesn't really pull anything from the original. So how do you guys continue that kind of tradition in this film? What are like, what are some of those things that like, when you start putting them in, it was like, ah, this is starting to feel like the world of Mary Poppins. It's starting to feel like the music. I mean, obviously, everyone is kind of throwing all the material at you. There's a lot of like subtle background music too, all like kind of the vignettes that connect scenes together. But like, what were some of the things, the elements that really made it, you know, Mary Poppins for you guys when it started to feel that way? Um, well, you know, Richard, I mean, the music is such a separate element of right. it. And we did use his little, his songs to inter interweave between numbers and things and that was wonderful to hear that i mean everybody wanted to hear a spoonful of sugar you know yeah. <laughs> so you you got to hear these things you go oh my god and it brought you back to that i mean i think in this film what a huge element was the wind you know mary poppins originally arrives with this giant windstorm right and blows all the nannies away and she's the, the last one that hangs on desperately she gets stuck <laughs> off in the wind and so I think for this particular film, we used, I mean, Eugene had, was genius with the winds. I mean, each particular wind had this personality and it went from, you know, the subtle blow of a leaf across the sidewalk to a gale force that brought her to or into our lives again. So I think that that was, that was one of the elements that we used a lot. That's good. To yeah. Make yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh, and just in, just for fun and detail, because people like to hear this sort of things. Um, leaves, when they blow across the cobblestone or cement, have a really incredible sound. They, It's this ticky sound, but it also has this Doppler phase shift to it because it's passing by with very high frequencies. And uh, I just love that sound and try to get it in as much as possible. And one thing we did in Foley, uh, Creative Foley, Wild Foley, was just we put leaves on strings <laughs> and would, you know, a 20 foot string and drag it across in front of the microphone to get this sort of pass by of tinkling leaves on cement. <laughs> and um, just, you know, one of those fun things you get to do to to replicate that sound, uh, which is hard to get a lot of in real in the real world. But for sure, the winds were a um, a, a motif. Uh, like Renee says, she arrives on the wind and, there's a there's a number of opportunities there that uh, you get to to 
to stretch out and have some fun with. That's awesome. Uh, so two of the, for people who haven't seen the film, there's two kind of guest surprises. And here we have Dick Van Dyke and Angela Lansbury playing Mr. Dawes Jr. and the balloon lady. Two, as Renee and I were talking before we recorded, 93-year-old, you know, veteran <laughs> actors who are now being asked to perform next to, you know, the shoulders of Lin-Manuel and Emmanuel Blunt, Emily Blunt. So how did that work? How did it come about? What was it like to work with them and to to really integrate them into this all-star cast? Well, Dick Van Dyke, of course, was fantastic. And so Rob had this set up. And when he goes to dance up, stand on the desk, there were all these sort of hidden steps, you know, so he was going to step on a footstool and then on a chair and then up on that. And when he went to do it, well, another, well, I'll finish that, but when he went to do it, he just walked right up and stood up there. And we were all, everyone was like, you could see Emily Blunt at one moment has like a mom hand that goes up just in case, you know, because Rob said, if he falls, you both are dead because Lynn and Mary and Emily were on each side of him. And he just jumped up on that table and did it. And I would laugh to Rob because when I was cutting him, I said, Rob, he's doing an old man voice. You know, he really is making yeah. it. It was funny because he doesn't in his head think he's an old man, but he was doing that voice. Right. And, it, and we had to laugh because, of course, he is, you know, 93. But he was fantastic. And doing his Foley was wonderful because he really did. He actually asked Rob, he said, can I bring my own dance shoes? Oh, my God. You know, I'd love, I'd love to have my own. And Rob was like, Perfect. And then Angela, when she was singing, they had these cue cards all made up for her. And they were like, you know, we, we can use them. And they had a guy laying below. And she goes, I don't need them. And she never did. She never looked once. She knew all of her songs. She knew the lyrics. She sang in sync. She was amazing. And, you know, 93 and kept and was in tune. She was just, she was really just amazing professionals when you work at that level that's fantastic so what can you say about rob on the mix stage because he knows every frame he knows every story of what was happening that day obviously he's working so closely with his editor and but then when he gets to the stage obviously there's a shorthand that he's established with you renee because you guys have worked together over several pictures how do you describe where his ear goes and how he manages expectations and you know everything else that's going on his ear is beyond. I mean, we are sitting there listening to something and we'll have some way distant voice outside down the street and he'll say, who's talking? I'm like, what? <laughs> In the middle? Because you have to create, you know, a neighborhood sound and a lot of, sometimes you do that with voices right. and you do that with things. You'll go, there's a dog barking and I'm not kidding you. It's so, so it's so far in the background, but he can, un he hears every single element. Fortunately, um, we send him everything beforehand as much as possible, like Eugene said, because he doesn't like surprises. He needs to really digest things. Rob is somebody that really needs to formulate it know it, understand it, see it, hear it, and then he's comfortable with it. The worst thing to do with Rob is to throw something wild and new and fresh. And unfortunately, we had to do that with all the voices at the Dalton Hall because they were so there were so many of them and they had to be mixed. And the only way he could really hear that was at the final stage. So it was the first time he heard all these voices talking. So I had to go up to him and say, Rob, 
there's going to be a lot of surprises in this reel for you. So, you know, just know that and be prepared. And you always have to tell him beforehand because he doesn't want to be surprised. So that's part of his ability to really focus on everything. He doesn't, he's the most uber focused person I've ever seen. Like you can come up to him, he'll be hearing a bunch of things and you'll say, Rob, can I talk to you for a second? And he'll just stop what he's doing. He'll look right at you. He'll listen. He'll give you your, his answer. And then boom, he's gone. He's out again. So he, he's just really, uh, I've never worked with anybody like him. How did you find him, Eugene? I, I, <laughs> it was a, it was a real treat for me. Um, and again, I'm very fortunate uh, to to work as Renee. We work with wonderful directors and get a a firsthand look often on the creative process, which is uh, is just a wonderful opportunity. I have to say, um, uh, by far and away, the most pleasurable experience as a human being. <laughs> and I work with wonderful guys and women, uh, but for something. For some reason, Rob is just an, the next level nice guy uh, with an opinion, a very strong opinion, uh, but also very good understanding of feelings and intent. And in coaxing performances out of actors, he also uses that same sensitivity uh, in reacting to certain things we develop for him. And he's the, uh, the first to not like it. But he and he can and he can say it strongly. But for the most part, honestly, he, he he's a fascinating guy um, as a person, as a human being. And uh, and that comes through in his movie making, I think. And I agree with everything Renee said. I have <laughs> never met a more fastidious, fastidious director. He's a detail oriented guy. Uh, and you know what? You have to be. I think yeah. on our very first our very first conversation, Renee, when when I was introduced to Rob on the phone, he was still in London. And which I, and I said to him, you make it look so easy because, and he mentioned last night in the, in the interview, musicals are incredibly hard. There are yeah. so many more moving pieces and not to mention the choreography, but he truly has this grasp on all of it and juggles 19 balls in the air at the same time and does it, you know, with a smile. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very kind. Yeah, I mean, if you're just looking, obviously, you know, coming from Into the Woods and Chicago, I mean, those are, oh, I, I think Chicago to me was a film that uh, really changed the audience's expectation of what a musical could be. It doesn't have yes. to, doesn't have, Absolutely. yeah, so what can you say Rob Marshall musical is that maybe, because we don't have as many musicals, obviously, these days, there's not a, uh, an emphasis on turning these out, because they're hard. They're not every director. They're very yeah. hard. Yeah. So what, what can you say is you specifically unique to his style? Because there is a, a very, uh, it doesn't pull you out. I, I think he just has a very firm understanding of how his approach works and why it works, you know, better than just like stopping everything. And it's a very like rigid in out, you know? Yeah. No, I think his biggest plus is that he worked on Broadway. Yeah, and so when you're doing live theater, there is no, oh, we'll fix it in post. It just doesn't happen. It's live. It's happening now. It has to be perfect. He is a perfectionist, which is wonderful to work with somebody like that because you know when you're there's no good enough with Rob, it's got to be the best. And he really does his homework. He works it out so much so that by the time, you know, the fact that he spends two months rehearsing with the actors, nobody does that. 
that's just amazing. And it's a very private set. It's called the camp. He calls mm-hmm. it, let's go to camp. But no one is allowed there. None of us, except for the DP, Dion Beebe, Rob, because Dion needs to know where to put the camera. So he's rehearsing too at the same moment. Not even the editor, none of us have ever been there because Rob really wants those actors to feel safe and protected and that they can make mistakes and they can sound bad and they can do things and nobody's going to be there to see it. And he creates, another thing about Rob is that he creates families. So once you're in his family and he likes you, you're in his family and that becomes, you know, he has families in production and he has his post family. And I've been really lucky to be in the post family. And I I would say that's probably one of the (laughs) wonderful things about Rob. Very kind man. That's so cool. Go ahead. I I, I wouldn't mind uh, adding to that too, that uh, to end tax, to answer your question, I really think he's unapologetically, unabashedly old school song and dance. And that just really doesn't exist anymore. And he's a link to the past. And in my opinion, you know, uh, uh, a very clever uh, interpreter of that to update it. And, um, you know, to compare, say, for instance, and I, I truly did like, say, La La Land. I thought the director's intent of bringing a new spin to a, to a genre and showing it with young people that were, you know, you know, people's age and it was is current i really did like that and then the flip side of that is rob's magical reality of this other world that most folks under a certain age have never seen or been a part of or would rather even not like other than rob presents it and you're you're affected by it you're 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 infected by it Mm -hmm. i mean i love this i love this one in particular i love nine i loved um uh, uh, you know, Chicago. And again, he has this ability to do things that I would say, Renee, very old school. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, the thing too, you're right. is like Mary Poppins, we look at as magical realism. It's not fantasy. She's a woman who happens to be very magical. And so everything Rob said to us, you know, needs to be dipped in realism. And I think that he, it's a, it would be real easy to not go that way with Mary Poppins, to be more fantastical and to have more things happening. And, you know, we were very careful not to do fantasy kind of sound effects and things like that. And, and, and Eugene is right. He sort of became, you know, he, he was true to her. And um, I think with whatever medium he goes in, he becomes true to that. And he really understands it. It's funny. I was just looking ahead here on here, and there's a little mention of announced the Little Mermaid that that Raw might yeah. be, which just is like that to me. Just shows that there's an inherent just trust with Disney of his ability and what he has to offer, and also that he understands this type of like you're saying he understands old school musical Broadway which for someone who doesn't come from the world of uh, theater, there is a huge difference between the work that you know, traditionally uh, a director does on stage versus behind the camera. So uh, he makes it look effortless is basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. And he never stops. He just mm. never stops. It's not, It's mm. got to be perfect. He just has that drive. It's amazing. It's, it's infective. So one of the less kind of uh, obviously rock stars, I mean, this cast is insane, but with, with someone like Lin-Manuel 
coming onto the scene, introducing, like we were saying, musicals in a new way with Hamilton, he also has this really wonderful kind of opportunity in a few pieces. One of them was the uh, Triple Light, and also, I guess, the is it a cover is not the book? Is it kind of when he... Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting for that piece, a cover is not the book. There's like this really fast sequence where you guys must have just... I was just imagining the session. Like, what was it that like helped carry this his style which is kind of this rhythmic rap but it's just his delivery it's uniquely him so what can you say just about his style of musical performance it's not it's not the very beautiful drawn out emily blunt very articulate performance but you can still understand what he's saying so how did you manage lynn's tracks what what can you say about him well Mark Shaman really wrote all those songs. I mean, they all were homages to the pre to the previous movie, but he really finalized it and and made it specifically to the person, the actor that was singing it. So, of course, that's Lynn's forte, right? So we wanted he wanted to make sure that Lynn got a moment where he was doing that. And it was amazing. I mean, I, I actually saw him after he had just finished that whole scene with the penguins and he was kind of nervous. And I said, he said, I'm so glad it's done. I said, really? He said, I didn't think I'd be able to get through it. And I said, why? And he said, well, you know, I've never sang anyone else's words. Um, I had to imagine that there was this penguin with me all the time on a cane under my feet. You know, what was imaginary? And it's right at this point. And he really handled that, I think, amazingly well. I mean, he just, and dancing, and he had to dance, which he um, had never quite done like he had in this film. So I think, again, we had to be very careful to protect his lyrics because it was, there was a lot of them and they're fast. And, and we would all try to see if we could remember all the lyrics too. It was kind of a thing when we were, but he was, um, he was pretty amazing to work with. And we just, like like let him be i mean he had really done all the work for us and all we were doing was kind of filling it up for him you know the books the eugene did that really quick you know the books coming up really quickly and then the the pop-up books opening up and closing and it was really fun to work with that anything that you can share just about the uh trip a little a little fantastic yeah you know it was that was the scene that was a huge choreography and he said you know, and the way Rob works is he did it like a Broadway musical. So all those dancers did it from the beginning to the end. That's how they shot it. There wasn't, okay, cut, we're going to do this take now and do it over here. And they just shot it in all different directions. And they did it every single time the whole wow. way through. And, f- and what, how did you manage all the foley of all the tap dancing uh, lamplighters? Oh, it was fantastic because, uh, you know, we brought in the choreographers and like, you know, like the people up on the on the back staircase are doing something different and the people in the foreground and then the people run and then there's tumblers and flippers and people and then there's the the ones coming in with uh, ladders. There was ladders, there were flames, there was canes. Um, Eugene did amazing jobs with the flames and the torches and we then had ladders and every single thing of course had to be incredibly timed and perfect and we were very careful about editing and conforming that because if one element got out you could hear it it was it was such an important part to be completely in sync and as Eugene said we didn't necessarily cut to the picture we cut to the music so it was keeping 
hundreds, you know, 50 tracks or so of dancers all in tune with the music. So each track had to be first cut with the music and then they all had to be played back with the music. And then, you know, it, it, it kept going. You had to keep constantly modifying it, going back and tweaking sync and tweaking sync. So it was, it was a wonderful process to work with that. And Eugene yeah, did the sure. bikes. <laughs> well, me and Al Zaleski and, and my sound crew, but, but interesting thing did happen again. And through the development of, of the track, I think Renee, we were towards the end and there was a, either a arm Russell swoosh or a, or a flame whoosh that had to be a poignant contrapuntal like button to the, uh, the choreography and the musical, um, uh, this piece. And we were, we were, you know, there, we were listening to it and runs up, that's out of sync. And, uh, I was like, huh, that's out of sync. It should be, you know, but that, da da da. And sure enough, oh, you know, he's impeccable timing. Yeah. Oh my it God. It was all about timing. Yeah. It, it's and, and he will know. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was fun to, uh, you know, again, think you have it all together. <laughs> and then, the, you know, in the 10th listen, you go, no, no, he, he just picked up on it right away. And yeah. we, you know, we're talking, we're talking half frames at this point, or, you know, certainly not a full frame. It's really tight. I mean, one of the fun things about music, uh, ed uh, editing against music that I have found is, uh, being a sound effects editor against visual or production, you're lining things up. So they're, they're frame accurate in music. It's a whole other thing. I mean, mm -hmm. the click track and frame rates are two mm -hmm. different things. And there's a lot more interplay between what a frame is in terms of what could be musically on the beat, before the beat or after the beat. And we definitely ran into that with, say, the light pole when the lights came on uh, in Trip to Light Fantastic. You have the lights turning on. They move their feet. They move their feet on the uh, lampposts. And again, all of that was, uh, you know, you first go with sync, then you go with music and then. You develop past that, so it really is a feeling. And we're talking, like I said, quarter frames, eighth of a frames. It's not mm -hmm. just, oh yeah, advance that towards breakfast. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's yeah. a lot of work. And this and the sound pressure too. Like you, do we want to hear the feet? Do we want to hear the flames? Do we want to just subtly feel the feet? Do we want to? And every, you know, that was Michael Keller did an amazing job mm -hmm. on that. He was our he was our effects mixer, and. And I also got to give shout outs to Mike Presswood Smith, who was our dialogue and music mixer. He was amazing. I mean, they, we really had the mics, as we called them, were the, a fantastic team. And they, you know, they really created the proper pressure of, of this movie. It's really amazing how they work together. That's awesome. That's what I was going to ask you if there's other folks on your teams that you want to acknowledge. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah. Obviously, this film was not done by just four people. No. I mean, Mike Hyam was our music supervisor who came on way before us, and he's just amazing. And he's also a composer, so he's incredibly talented. And he came over from London and helped with us. Um, our music department, Jennifer Dunnington, Jim Bruning, Tim Marchiava. I mean, we, my, my editing team, dialogue, my Uber dialogue editor, uh, Alexa Zimmerman, who really was brilliant, cleaning up all kinds of stuff for us and keeping the original performances. Eric McAllister, of course, my <laughs> assistant, who is fantastic. He was sort of our—he uh, was the dad we called him of our of our group. He always kept everybody, you know, McAllister. Organized. And um, 
let's see, we had, you know, Wyatt Smith was our picture editor who was really helpful and amazing to us. Am I missing someone? I, I for Foley teams, we talked about Andy Malcolm and his team in Toronto, Marco Costanza, and George, and George. Lapa, right? And our Foley team in C5. And then our the Cordis Lee was amazing at, at Warner Brothers. I will say this too about our team. It was really unique for the first time in I mean, in my situation and in my experience in film. We worked together so seamlessly and we really, everybody was dipping in and out of each other's departments. We did it with such happiness and grace. Nobody got upset. There was no egos. It was, if you can make this better, great, thank you. We were constantly passing things off and back. It was just, it was really a unique experience. Absolutely, Renee. And uh, I just do want to sum up all the, the crew. Uh, we had Heather Gross cutting back. Oh, Heather. Oh, my God. <laughs> Heather was amazing. Yeah, Heather was phenomenal. Uh, uh, she did all our Foley and she helped me with the Foley and the feet. Of course, Heather. Thank you, Eugene. Yes. And uh, I mentioned Al Zaleski was helping with me with sound effects. Uh, Frank Kern was our Foley editor, uh, along with Cam Chen and Steve Fisher. Yeah. And then Andy's Andy's crew. What was fun about this, Michael, is we had two Foley crews and we were sort of playing them off each other for one's strengths. Who was better at this versus that? And they both were very, both crews were very, very good, but it was fun to develop some ideas. For instance, the kite was, you know, we, Renee and I did that with Marco and George in New York, but the bicycles I did with Andy Malcolm in Toronto and a number of other elements. Uh, so it was fun to have at our disposal a tremendous amount of talent. I, I just, it's fun. I mean, I saw the film last night and it's the most amazing thing about watching a movie is you forget that you're watching a movie because at the end of the songs, I, I kid you not, I wanted to clap. I was just like, Fully engaged. <laughs> Everyone does. I, every screening I've gone, the audience just yeah. claps. It's really true. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah, which which re which really shows, obviously, that not only does Rob, but you guys too, fully are pulling an audience in and, and transforming that experience. It's not just watching a movie. It's actually experiencing like a musical number. And and I, I think hats off to you guys because. It's not easy to do, and you make it really, you make it feel as, as natural as it could be. So, kudos across the board. Well, thank you. Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. And obviously, for anyone who hasn't had a chance to see it, go out and see it. It's so much fun. And uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Great job. Okay. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to my chat with the sound team of Mary Poppins Returns. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com.